All right, let's get rolling on today. Lecture two, introduction to Sophocles, Athenian tragedy, and Oedipus King, slides 27 to 46. All right, remember what we were talking about yesterday. We talked about the transition from Homeric epic poetry in the 8th century BCE to Athenian tragedy and Athenian drama in general in the 5th century BCE. So now we have traveled down to Athens. And in Athens, there is a great religious festival that occurs every year, and every four years is an even greater version called the great version of this festival called the Dionysia. The city Dionysia, three years in a row, followed by the great Dionysia. And at this great religious festival, at the theater of Dionysus, which can seat 15,000 Athenians at the height of its glory, uh, uh, tragedians over a three-day, uh, over three consecutive days, construct three consecutive tragedies in order to compete against two other uh, tragedians, so three total tragedians. And the one that we are considering during the course of the next few weeks will be Sophocles, not Aeschylus, who came before him, not Euripides, who came after him, but Sophocles precisely because, um, well, for at least two reasons. One is he was the most winning of all of them, and therefore best by the numbers. Um, and the second reason is that Aristotle actually says of him in his work, The Poetics, that his work, Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, um, three different languages there, um, is a perfect tragedy precisely because its recognition comes at the same moment as the turn of fate. But all that said, we still need some biographical information on Sophocles. So, note that uh, at the end of the lecture yesterday, I talked about how he wasn't simply a poet or a playwright, that he also lived an active, civically engaged life. This is because the Athenians had a direct... Um, democracy, and so you had to be civically engaged as, um, as an Athenian. It wasn't as easy as it is nowadays in 21st century America to sort of be disengaged from things. Uh, a direct democracy requires um, direct participation from each individual rather than representative participation as we have. And so we have city council members, we have mayors, we have uh, various uh, houses of representatives and senates at the state level as well as at the federal level. They didn't have all that. You had to do. You had to uh, uh, sort of kill what you eat for them. You had to do your own dirty work. So in any case, Sophocles became a man of importance in the public halls of Athens as well as in the theaters. He was elected as one of the ten strategoi. If you ever played the game stratego, it comes from the Greek word uh, for general, which is strategos, and he was one of those ten generals. They are high executive officials that commanded the armed forces. That means they are the generals. Uh, we call them generals these days. As a, uh, and notice that uh, the lowest rank in the army is private, the highest is general, meaning that you have uh, the most possible influence. Uh, and he was a junior colleague of a very famous Athenian statesman named Pericles. Now a couple things about Pericles. He very famously was represented in Thucydides' his, uh, history of the Peloponnesian War as giving a very beautiful funeral oration where he talks about how everybody who's sad about the young who have died during this war that took about 30 years, um, and actually Pericles died during because of a terrible plague that also hit Athens during that time. So not only were they being afflicted by Spartans, but also by plague. Same time, very similar to the uh, Kians at the beginning of the Iliad. However, they, they did not supervene because of that. Um, uh, this Pericles was considered one of the greatest statesmen of uh, the Athenian uh, democracy. And so uh, to have been a contemporary of his must have been a great honor for Sophocles. So, in 443 BC, he also served as one of the Hellenotomii, or treasurers, of Athena, and helped to manage the finances of the city during the political ascendancy 
of Pericles. And then in 413, he was elected to be one of the commissioners crafting a response to the catastrophic destruction of the Athenian expeditionary force in Sicily during the Peloponnesian War. And that Peloponnesian War, just to remind you, there were two major wars that uh, you need to know about um, from uh, regarding the Athenians, there's the Persian Wars, which they won. Aeschylus was involved in that, and he had that inscribed on his tombstone. And also the Peloponnesian Wars, which they had against the Spartans, which they would end up um, losing, unfortunately, for them. Uh, and so, Sophocles then died at the venerable age of 90 in 406 or 405 BCE. And during his lifetime, as I was just saying, he saw both the Greek triumph in the Persian Wars and the terrible bloodletting of the Peloponnesian War. Now, something interesting. His son, Yophon, and his grandson, also called Sophocles after him, followed in his footsteps to become playwrights themselves. And so that is essentially the life of Sophocles. So let's move on to Oedipus Tyrannus, the play, the winning tragedy that we are going to be considering together now. So, as I said in our last lecture, among Sophocles' earliest innovations was the addition of a third actor. Recall that it was Aeschylus before him that used two actors, and with the introduction of the third actor, the chorus became a little bit less important, and the plot became a little bit more, mo more motivated by action rather than simply uh, dialogue. Though, uh, uh, obviously, in a play, a lot of the action is, uh, um, is uh, demonstrated by means of dialogue, especially because something about these... Um, these, uh, these, this theater in particular, there weren't a lot of scenes, there weren't a lot of backdrops, there weren't a lot of conventions, though there was a, there was a way to uh, lower down a god at the end of a play, called, which we, we still keep a literary term for, called the deus ex machina. I'm forgetting the exact term, uh, I'll look that up for us, of what that, uh, that crane was called, but they, they did have that eh, as well. So, in any case, an idea which the old master Aeschylus himself also adopted towards the end of his life. Uh, he did add the third actor near the end of his life, showing that not only did he influence Sophocles, but Sophocles, great as he was, influenced the master that came before him, Aeschylus, as well. And as I was saying, this further reduced the role of the chorus and created greater opportunity for the deeper development of character and additional conflict between characters. Makes me think a bit about Achilleus and Agamemnon there. Now, most of Sophocles' plays show an undercurrent of fatalism. Fatalism is uh, sort of a pessimistic way of looking at the world, a way of looking at the world and um, seeing that some things will happen no matter what you attempt. And so uh, a fatalistic outlook is an outlook that is uh, predetermined, that believes in predetermination or determinism, that even if I try to fight against my fate, I will never, ever escape my fate. That is a fatalist way of seeing things, and I think you will uh, uh, see, see that fatalism in Oedipus the King quite a bit. He also begins to use um, some philosophy in there, what we call here Socratic logic. Socrates was the philosopher, one of the first philosophers in Athens. Uh, there were pre-Socratic philosophers as well, like Thales um, um, and um, Anaximenes, Anaxagoras, Heraclitus, Empedocles, uh, all respectively believing in things like the world is made of void, or the world is made of water, or the world is made of fire, um, or the world is, uh, starts with strife, depending on which pre-Socratic you think of. In any case, the Socrates started coming to preeminence in the 5th and 4th century as well, and was himself the teacher to the great philosopher Plato, who would record him and use him as the protagonist in many of his 
dialogues. Um, and Plato was then himself the uh, teacher of Aristotle, who was the teacher of Alexander the Great. Um, so, uh, interesting there. In any case, uh, Sophocles starts to integrate logic into his drama. Uh, logical conversations, we will see that quite a bit in the Antigone, and a little bit in Oedipus as well. Now, Aeschylus then died in 456, and after that happened, it was, Sophocl it was the Sophocles show. He became the preeminent um, playwright in Athens. He was the Steven Spielberg of that uh, time. Now, Sophocles respected Aeschylus enough to imitate his work early in his career. Of course, a younger playwright, long, younger artist, looks up to the great masters of old, imitates their style, tries to incorporate their styles. Yes. But he always had some reservations about this style. Uh, and so in the second stage of his career, we split uh, Sophocles' career into three stages, his early stage, his middle stage, and his late stage. In his middle stage, he, uh, he went on to create a style all his own, introducing new ways of evoking feeling out of an audience. That is one of the uh, big reasons that you go to see a tragedy, according to Aristotle, again, in his Poetics. He says that you go to a tragedy in order to purge yourself of your sad and terrible emotions. So you go to see something sad happen so that you can cry a whole bunch, so that you no longer need to cry because you've gotten rid of your sad emotion. It's supposed to be, uh, uh, we have the word catharsis from this. It's supposed to be an, an expurgation or purging of the emotions. Very interesting idea. So uh, uh, I do think about that when I think about, like, say, a sad student who's wearing black and listening to emo music as well. It's like, is that person attempting to purge himself or herself of the sad emotions in, uh, or, or just continue to cause those <laughs> sad emotions in himself or herself? It's an interesting question. Sad people tend to be sad. Angry people tend to be angry. Do they like these emotions? I'd say probably yes. In any case, in the third, final stage of uh, Sophocles' career, his mature stage, as it were, he paid more heed to diction. Diction is a word um, that comes from dicere in Latin, which means to speak. He, he paid more, a uh, um, more attention to his language and um, being precise in his language, florid in his language, beautiful in his language, and had his, uh, or actually uh, sort of the opposite of more florid, his characters spoke in a way that was more natural to them and more expressive of their individual uh, feelings. So rather than having more stylized language, the language became more real, more close to home, more natural in, in, in that it was more conversational, easier to connect with, with the audience. It, more like how you would talk to your friends if you were an ancient Greek uh, individual in Athens in the 5th century. Hmm. In any case, only seven of his prodigious uh, plays, or of his originally prodigious out output, uh, continue to exist. As I told you yesterday, he originally had 123 plays that we uh, have records of in various accounts. However, we only have seven of those plays still in existence. They are the Ajax, Antigone, the Trachinii, from his early works. Only one middle period work, Oedipus the King, that's what we're starting with. And then three from his late period, Electra, Philoctetes, and Oedipus at Colonus. Hmm. The Ajax, I used to teach that in the Philoctetes. It's so interesting that they come from different periods because there are many similarities between them. But something I think you notice just in the titles of these plays is that they do obviously take their themes from epic poetry. Ajax is obviously a character from the Iliad. Um, Antigone comes from the story of the fight against, or the war against Thebes, which is also an epic motif. Oedipus was her, was her father, sorry. Philoctetes, also a warrior in the Iliad. Electra, one of Agamemnon's daughters. 
Oedipus, Echelonus, there's Oedipus again. And so you can see it's almost like the epics were the movies and that these plays were like the shows or the episodes that were the spin-offs of them. So there's like a big Wonder Woman movie and then all of a sudden there's like a Wonder Woman show um, uh, later on. And the sort of thing that Disney often does. There was an Aladdin animated movie when I was young and then it was followed by an Aladdin uh, animated show. Much cheaper to produce. Alright, now... The three so-called Theban plays, of which we will be reading two, are Antigone, Oedipus the King, and Oedipus at Colonus. We're going to read Oedipus the King first. Uh, these are the best known of uh, Sophocles' plays. These are probably the best known um, ancient Greek, ancient Athenian <coughs> tragedies that exist. Um, although they were written separately over a period of about 36 years and were never intended to form a consistent trilogy, they often are included as a consistent trilogy in uh, books today. And so do not be deceived by the fact that whenever you go to a used bookstore, which I hope is often, and you see editions of the Theban tragedy, that you'll see Oedipus the King, you'll see Antigone in there, you'll see Oedipus and Colonus all in one volume. They were not performed at the same time. They were not uh, ever written. Uh, uh, they were not written at the same time, and they were never intended to be performed in three consecutive days. However, that is uh, sort of how we perceive them this day because it's just easier to uh, package them all together. Uh, that's probably a marketer's decision, not Sophocles' decision in any case. Alright, there are fragments of many other plays by Sophocles which exist, but only fragments, very frustrating. They're of varying sizes, conditions, and they even include fragments of the Ignoitai, which are the tracking satyrs. That's one of his satyr plays. Now, remember I told you that during this festival of Dionysus, this, uh, this great Dionysia, or the city Dionysia, the playwrights, the tragedians, there would be three of them, they would compete each other against each other on three adjoining days. Uh, one day tragedy, second day tragedy, third day tragedy, fourth day. You have to, you got to purge all that tragedy. That's a lot of sad days. You need to have a satyr play. And what a, a satyr is, for which Saturn day is named, and the Saturnalia, if you know what that sort of thing is, it's a Roman idea, is uh, a satyr is basically like half goat, half man. And the idea is that somebody who is given into their appetites. They're often drunk and led by a Silenus, uh, who is himself drunk and is a companion of Dionysus, who is the god of wine. And so uh, the idea is, is if you're going to celebrate Dionysus, you can't just be crying, crying, crying. You've got to have a good time at some point. And so this was sort of a palate cleanser. These were tragic comedies. I, am I even to that? Uh, yes, very good. These were uh, tragic comedies. They were burlesque. They're often uh, crude, vulgar. They would uh, use swear words. They would show um, uh, vulgar parts of the human. They would, they would make you laugh, but also question things. These, are, these were weird, sort of gonzo plays. And in fact, even if you just look at the, the title, Euripides' Cyclops is a satyr play that is the best preserved. And so it's probably about, uh, I haven't read it, unfortunately, but I, I'm sure it's about something like Polyphemus getting his eye poked out after drinking and having a good time with Odysseus. But I should probably look into that. In any case, recall that term I just used, where satyr play is an ancient Greek form of tragic comedy. That's sort of a comedy with tragic elements, or a tragedy with comic elements. There, uh, there are lots of funny parts. There are lots of sad parts, too. It's hard to define exactly what it is. Um, in any case, burlesque is uh, more of a contemporary word uh, French means there are, there are sort of um, elements of romance shared, uh, a crude romance 
shared between uh, women and men often. Um, often, like say, uh, a brothel would be a part of a burlesque show. A brothel is a place where uh, uh, prostitutes are. In any case, hmm. satyrs, just a couple more things about them, are nature spirits who combine male traits, and this comes from the uh, 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 Britannica.com, uh, beards, hairy body, bodies, flat noses, and more vulgar male appendages often as well. So they're, they're walking around uh, not well clothed. And they often have the ears and tails of horses. The idea is they're people who have given in to their passions. In any case, at the Dionysia, or Dionysia, whether it be great or polis, the playwrights would, like I told you, com construct three tragedies and one satyr play. And you want that satyr play? Yeah, I don't know if you all have ever done this. It used to be the case that when I would watch a, a serious movie at night, I would often watch like an episode of something funny right after that because it was hard to go to sleep after something serious. I see this as a, very much an extension of what they did in ancient Athens. Alright, let's talk a little bit about the play itself that we're going to get to. Notice its name up there, Oedipus the King. Notice also its Greek name, Oedipus Tyrannos. Tyrannos is not the only word for king in Greek. In fact, it's where we get the word tyrant from. The softest definition of tyrant is somebody that does not have a blood claim on being king. The harshest uh, definition of tyrant is someone who does not deserve and is not rightfully king and is harsh and cruel to his subjects. Um, Oedipus is the former, not the latter. He simply does not have a blood claim, so he thinks, on his particular um, crown. And that's important, and that's why I think you should see the Greek title. Um, the Latin Oedipus Rex, the word Rex is the word from which we get regal, or regicide, or regina for uh, queens. Um, and uh, so the, uh, the idea of tyrant, of someone who does not uh, quite belong as king, is not included in that title, which is why I don't like it as much. And Oedipus the King, obviously, it, it should be something a, a little closer in our language to Oedipus the Tyrant. And I think that would definitely change how we perceived um, the play itself. And so I want you to keep that in your mind, because part of the irony of this play, dramatic irony will be a big part of it, when we see what's going to happen, but the characters inside the play do not, that is what dramatic irony is, um, it will add to the irony. The fact that people think he's a tyrant, but he's not a tyrant, because he actually, uh, he <laughs> because he actually is uh, of the blood of the king. But I'll explain that as we get there. So, Oedipus Tyrannus is a tragedy by the ancient Greek playwright Sophocles, son of Sophilus. First performed in about 429 BC, that's about um, 12 years after the Antigone was first, first performed in 441 BC. It was the second of Sophocles' three Theban plays to be produced, but it comes first in the internal chronology, which means he first wrote a play about Antigone, but Antigone as a play comes after Oedipus. And so, well, there, there it is. Uh, it's sort of like how we are learning about an ancient Athenian, but where the narrative is going to take place in ancient Thebes, which actually come. Uh, so we're learning about an Athenian after we learned about Homer, uh, but he writes about a time that came before the time that Homer wrote about. Um, the Theban War happens before the Trojan War. In any case, it was then followed by Oedipus and Colonus, um, and then Antigone would be the internal uh, chronology. So Oedipus the King, Oedipus and Colonus, we're going to skip that one, and then Antigone, these are generally considered two of the greatest uh, masterpieces of all time. In any case, what's the story of this, uh, this tragedy, this play, this Athenian uh, masterpiece. Well, it follows the story of King Oedipus of Thebes. So, he's a king, or a tyrant, one of those. As he discovers that he has, 
uh, and follow this closely, unwittingly, that means unknowingly, killed his own father, Laius, and married his own mother, Jocasta. Totally unthinkable. To kill your own parents without knowing that you had killed them, just to realize that you had killed them later on, and then to marry one of your parents, to produce offspring with your parent, just to realize later on what you had done and not really be able to do anything about it. It will be a, it will be a horrifying moment for poor Oedipus when he realizes all that he has done all at once, and we will be there to do it right with him, to experience the, uh, the emotion. In any case, over the centuries, it has come to be regarded by many, 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 many people as the Greek tragedy par excellence, this French expression, which means by its excellence, because of its excellence, and certainly as the summit, the summit being the top of Sophocles' achievements. All right, good. I'm just going to give you a couple more slides on the story just so that we have a couple things to talk about before we uh, get to um, seminar tomorrow. In any case, welcome to Thebes. Thebes is actually, if you recall, Hercules, where Hercules first goes in order to uh, defeat a Hydra, in order to make his name, and remember, it's sort of considered a dirty and terrible city at that time. Well, at this time, Thebes is actually a pretty nice place. Uh, however, a terrible plague has fallen upon it. So, uh, okay, some information for, from before then, though. This is a time from before the Trojan War. This is the time even before the Theban War. Um, uh, the Theban War will have occurred before the Antigone begins, but it does occur after Oedipus, the king, uh, uh, ends. It even occurs after Oedipus at Colonus, too. The, the, the events that lead towards it happen in Oedipus at Colonus, which I can explain to you later. In fact, two sons of Oedipus who he has by Jocasta, his own mother, unknowingly, are Eteocles and Polynices. His two daughters are Ismene and Antigone. It is his two sons, Eteocles and Polynices, who are supposed to share the kingship of um, Thebes after their father um, abdicates from his rulership. Uh, they do not do that. Um, I always forget which one it is, but I believe it's Polynices that then uh, stakes a claim on the city. Eteocles then goes and raises an army, including seven champions, which also includes Diomedes' father, Tidius, and they fight a war, and Teocles and Polynices uh, end the war by striking each other down. And um, then, actually, their uncle becomes king, so neither of them gets to be king. And so it's sort of like uh, when you're, if you have a sibling, and your parents say, uh, if you can't share, neither of you gets it. And, well, that happened to Teocles and Polynices. Sorry for them. All right. Now, Here's more backstory about Oedipus, just to let you know what's happening at the outset of the play. Oedipus was given away as a child due to a prophecy about him that he would lay with his mother and kill his father. All right, so uh, his parents wanted to do away with him. They actually wanted to kill him to make sure that that didn't happen. This is a common sort of fairy tale uh, heroic motif. This happens with Moses, this happens with Jesus, this happens with Heracles, this happens with uh, Oedipus. When you're a baby, you're going to be afflicted with, uh, or you are in tremendous danger. Heracles had two serpents sent to try and kill him. Jesus had a king looking for him, trying to kill him. Moses, of course, had to be put in, in a, a river and float down it and be uh, discovered by a princess in order to uh, survive. And so all very unlikely scenarios. Snakes usually eat babies. Uh, rivers usually eat babies, too. Not so in this case. And uh, here, Oedipus was supposed to be killed by his parents, but they didn't want to get their 
their hands dirty. They didn't want the Furies to come on, uh, 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 come upon them. And so they, uh, they gave the duty to a shepherd, but the shepherd found that he couldn't do it. And so he ends up giving Oedipus away, and Oedipus ends up growing up as a prince in a different kingdom. And uh, funnily enough, not to give too much away, he will actually hear the same prophecy, that he will someday sleep with his mother and kill his father. And then that will cause him to run away from his adopted family, right towards his actual family. And so there's dramatic irony at work right there. And so, he was sent away as a child, not knowing, growing up, that he was adopted. So be honest with your children when you have them. And because of that fact, Oedipus' recognition and turn of fate will happen in the same moment. As I told you earlier, Aristotle, a 4th century Greek philosopher, calls Oedipus the perfect tragedy for this reason. Notice those two dramatic conventions. This comes from Aristotle. These, these moments make a good tragedy. A recognition, a recognition uh, that things are not as they have been, or you are not who you thought you were, and then a turn of fate. So things have to go from good to bad, and you have to realize it. And that is the key. That is the essential moment in the tragedy. That is one of the moments by which we judge the tragedies. How horrifying is that moment? And how unbelievable and yet believable is that moment? Oh my goodness, this situation actually occurred. How could it occur? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Yuck. Should be about uh, how your reaction goes uh, when that happens with Oedipus. In any case, what has just happened at the beginning of the play? A plague has descended on Thebes and her king, Oedipus, descends to the public to find out the cause. Now remember what plagues uh, often function as. In the Iliad, the plague was a symbol of internal conflict. Often plagues come about because some law of the gods with ancient Greeks has not been honored like the uh, taboo against incest in this case, and uh, the taboo against uh, sacrilege towards the gods, in the case of Agamemnon, with, um, anybody remember the name of that old uh, prophet of Apollo, that old priest of Apollo who came to collect his daughter so long ago, yeah? Chrysus, very good. Chrysus, father of Chryseis, very good memory there. So, uh, just the fact that there's a plague going on here lets us know that somebody has been up to no good. Something, uh, uh, just to give you an anachronistic quote from Hamlet, something, uh, oh no, let me, uh, I guess I'm going to have to paraphrase it. There's something foul in the air of Denmark, or something stinks in the air of Denmark. I, I totally got that wrong, but I'll, I'll remember what it is later. Oh, what is it? It's, uh, uh, I, I won't be able to remember it on the spot. It is something like something is foul in the air in Denmark. In any case, you'll, you'll read about that as juniors. So, Oedipus comes down and sees the common people and presumes his own importance arrogantly. And he says, I whom all men call Oedipus the Great. And so you can see this tragic convention here. He is a man who is nobler, who is uh, more accomplished than a normal person. He's a perfect candidate to be a tragic hero, to be uh, uh, someone subjected to a fall. I whom... All men call Oedipus the Great. They will not call him Oedipus the Great at the end of this play, that's for sure. And so, a priest of Zeus addresses Oedipus, tells him of people turning to Athena, and of the terrible blight affecting the city. And he says, we come to you as a man, not as a god. Can you find some way to solve this terrible problem? And yet, Oedipus seems to sort of be inflated and think of himself more as a god. It is he, not simply Athena, who will deal with this problem. And uh, he is actually uh, correct. If you uh, think about it, it's that 
he simply, like so many humans, doesn't realize that the problem is actually what? Himself and his own actions. That's quite right. And so Oedipus, as horrifying as the situation is that he finds himself is, is also a figure for all of us. And insofar as in the situation, what is causing the problem? Well, look, look, investigate, investigate, and then just come back to find out that the problem was you all along. All right. And that is the introduction to Oedipus. As I told you, this lecture is not going to be quite as long as yesterday's. And so that is now true.